Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Ashish Bhatia, a technical leader with diverse experience in building software. Uh, he currently holds technically advisory roles at five startups. He's an investor with over 40 startups and nine exits to this point. Ashish has worked as a software engineer in Celo, uh, which is in cryptocurrencies. He's also worked at Facebook and WhatsApp and as a founding engineer on Google's Android app scanning product, uh, Google Bouncer. Today, we're talking with Ashish about his journey working inside big companies, big, big tech companies, and then transitioning his work to more startup sized companies. But before we get into that, Ashish, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Oleg. Uh, thanks for the great introduction. I couldn't have introduced myself better. We're excited to have you here. Uh, so yeah, let's get started here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got started in technology. I would say I always enjoyed writing code, building things, even during my college days. So it was pretty clear to me that this is sort of an area I'm going to pursue. This is sort of an area I'm going to stay in. And uh, somehow the stars aligned, things worked out. I, I I was able to get roles that I want, and I, I was able to enter technology into industry at the right time, or when it was when when the growth was you know just happening around 2010, just when I graduated. Can you take us back to that time? Like, uh, yeah. So so you graduated in in 2010. What did you do after that? Oh yeah. Uh, so back in uh, 2008, I had internship at Google. Uh, and I would say that that was probably the biggest uh, game changer thing uh, in my life. Uh, because of that internship, I was able to come back in 2010 and uh, get a full-time role at Google. And that's how my journey continued. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's funny if you think about the timing aspect. Uh, I graduated in 2010. If instead I graduated uh, a year earlier in 2009, most of the tech uh, companies, including Google, had a job freeze at that time. So my career trajectory might have been very different. Maybe better, maybe worse. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? You could have gone on to start a company or maybe <laughs> never get that job. But t tell us more about your specific area of expertise in tech. What, what do you, where do you like to focus? I would say, in general, in tech, I like building things. And I would say what I'm building, that, that, that varies. And uh, in in that sense, you know, my interests have evolved over time. Uh, there is always a desire to learn something new in me, and and that has kept me pushing from one area to another area. There is uh, another set of you know individuals in tech who who, who also like building things, but you know, uh, they instead prefer to you know build an expertise in a one one particular area. Like you would come across uh, an engineer who has been working in say ads. Uh, at tech for say 15, 20 years. That's not my persona. My persona is more of a someone who prefers going more broad. So, in, in terms of and and that's what I count as my expertise: being able to build a diverse set of things, be it backends, be it frontends, be it mobile apps, be it uh, uh, DApps on uh, uh, cryptocurrency platforms. Uh, I'm relatively pretty fluent in most of them. But I wouldn't count myself as an expert in either of them. I think that this is the trade-off you take when you go broad. You have to uh, sacrifice uh, uh, the knowledge that you can gain in a particular area. 
Yeah, well, well clearly, uh, you know, you are well suited to your area of expertise. You've done pretty well and you've gotten hired and rehired at, at, at these great companies. So according to your LinkedIn, you know, after a couple of internships and stints in academia, you joined Google as a software engineer. Can you just tell us about how you got hired at Google? Well, yeah, I think uh, it was a standard interview process at that time, somewhat simplified because I had a prior internship. One interesting thing was I did have to, uh, at that time I was in India, so I did have to get a visa and uh, fly here for uh, one single day of uh, uh, on-site interviews back in uh, early 2010. What kind of interesting projects were you working on over there? So at Google, I think I, I see I, uh, I ended up being lucky. I ended up being part of a three-person team, which was just being formed as as the as three of us joined to build a new pipeline for scanning Android apps before they are published to Google Play. And this was uh, uh, a, a new team being formed in Google at that time. Uh, the, the issue was being noticed that uh, Google is hosting all these uh, apps in Google Play Store. It was, it was called Android Market at that time. Uh, and these apps could damage the user. So one, there is an obvious harm to the user. And second, there is an obvious issue of uh, uh, negative uh, PR or, or the negative impact it will have on Google. So in, in that sense, I think we ended up being really lucky that three of us get to experience building a complete pipeline for, from scratch for uh, processing hundreds and thousands of uh, applications that were published uh, uh, every day into Google Play. And we built like a full-fledged dynamic and a static analysis system to detect and catch a lot of bad stuff there. I would say it was 20% maybe Android specific, but 80% just building generic backend pipelines, big, big pipelines. It, it was a great uh, stepping stone into my career. You know, I, I know people are so interested in Google and, and any stories that come out of that. C- can you talk about maybe some of the challenging parts uh, of, of working there? Was it the work? Was it the, anything? What was challenging about it? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, so I would say Google definitely. Uh, as some of the smartest people on the planet, some of the smartest engineers on the planet, no questions on that. Working there is uh, uh, definitely, you're challenged every day by, you know, what can be done and how can you, you know, keep up with everyone. It's, it's, it's an interesting battle. It's an interesting challenge to be fighting. And at the same time, from more of an engineering perspective, I would say scale is a huge challenge. Any product that Google launches. So, so I was not involved in any consumer-facing product, but, you know, even even when, uh, even with my friends who were involved in consumer-facing products, as soon as the first TechCrunch article goes out, a million or a five million users would log in immediately on the same day and will use the product. So uh, in Google's case, you have to build from uh, scratch. You have to build for scale almost immediately. You cannot have a slow growth path, uh, slowly climbing 10, 20% week over week or month over month, which, you know, many startups have a luxury of in the Bay Area. So how many years were you at Google and, and when did you decide to leave? About three years. I Once I realized that I had uh, uh, my major chunk of learning that I wanted to gain, I wanted to experience the startup culture in Bay Area. That's, that's what this area is known for. Less so at that time than, uh, you know, 10 years later, but even at that time. So at that time, I started looking around 
I looked at, uh, you know, other bigger companies, other established companies of uh, 100, 200, 500 employees. I looked at uh, smaller companies. And then uh, once I found that uh, I feel like there's a match, I decided to jump in. And where was that? Where did you find that match? Oh, yeah, there, there, there was Morta Security. Uh, so it was in the same uh, security space. I continued uh, my career as software engineer and security, joining, uh, uh, leaving Google, joining Morta Security in 2013. After that, you went to work for WhatsApp. Can you talk about your experience there? And do you remember any interesting turning points? Yeah, I think that was a huge context switch in uh, many, uh, in, in, a, in a very interesting way. So uh, at both Google and Morta Security, I was building products meant to be used by uh, other engineers. So uh, there's a higher demand for building, you know, a product which has sufficient features that your users are asking for. But there's no, well, there is, I would say, much little focus, much less focus on usability issues or user experience issues. Compared to that, WhatsApp was building, as we used to say, grandmother in Brazil. So. Uh, uh, that's, that's what co-founders used to say, and I used to love this phrase, that uh, there's a grandmother in Brazil, she's using WhatsApp, she doesn't know what a server is, she doesn't know what a host name is, and the only thing she wants to do is uh, send uh, text messages, send photos, record videos, and communicate uh, with uh, her uh, uh, family members. So the specification, the the way you build the product changes drastically. And at the same time, I made another jump. Uh, till now, at Morta, as well as Google, I was, um, I was a back-end engineer. And now uh, I jumped fully into mobile, focusing on Android. And uh, that, that was a huge context switch uh, to you know building a product that runs on a device you don't control versus building back-end server uh, that you are in full control of. So the challenges change completely. That's really interesting uh, and, and a funny kind of use case of uh, user-driven design building for the grandmother in Brazil. I love that. Ashish, you mentioned, you know, working at Google for three years and wanting to experience the startup world after that. What kind of lessons did you take from Google that you carried over to uh, the next stage, like WhatsApp? I would say good engineering practices. Uh, Google has great engineering practices of, you know, how you go about writing code, how you go about structuring code, and how you go about maintaining the code in the long run. And I think uh, that's, uh, that's uh, every engineer who gets a chance to work at Google should try to, you know, absorb those skills and take them elsewhere. Uh, many friends of mine uh, uh, who joined Google much later in their life after leaving other big companies also commented on uh, how great the engineering practice is. Uh, are at Google, and is it easy to bring those over to the to the startup world, or or is it challenging? I guess it depends. So some of these things are, uh, uh, I would say, individual things, but some of these things involve uh, a team level initiative. So you can't really change things that involve a team as easily as you can, you know, change things. Those can be changed by an individual. So. You, you need some amount of, you know, influence and people capital and those kind of cases to bring in those changes. Tell me about some of the biggest technical challenges uh, that you had to address while at WhatsApp. I would say a very different kind of a scale. 
can contrasting with my google days where you know we were building trying to see how efficiently can we process uh, these apps as quickly as possible all these app updates those were coming in daily as quickly as possible and decide whether these apps are malicious or not compared to that here the biggest challenge was scale and fragmentation of devices so wide and varied set of devices uh, with wide and varied set of bugs that are being triggered because some because you know some undocumented aspect or even a documented aspect of android api has been implemented incorrectly by a chinese vendor which is suddenly very popular in some part of the africa and we are seeing a lot of uh, crashes or bugs related to that so these were the kind of uh, issues that our goal was to make the app as robust as possible on all possible And then after WhatsApp, you went to work for a company called Cello, uh, a blockchain company. Can you tell us what they what they what they do and uh, what you worked on there? In the case of Cello, my goal was you know get. I was reading and learning, educating myself in the field of cryptocurrencies, even uh, while I was working at WhatsApp and Facebook. But then I wanted to uh, jump in and educate myself and uh, do hands-on work related to cryptocurrencies. So that's exactly what I got a chance to do at Celo. Celo, uh, like most uh, major blockchains, is the fork of Ethereum. So we did lots of major modifications. I got a chance to do modify and make major improvements to the Ethereum code base, or more precisely, our fork of the Ethereum code base to do the kind of things uh, that Ethereum did support at that time, and we wanted to implement to make Celo a superior product. So, you know, at this point, we've talked about, you know, three different companies, all kind of rocket ships that you've worked at, all doing amazing things. Uh, what would you say your biggest accomplishment was while working at those rocket ships? I would say getting things done is almost always the biggest accomplishment, you know, for uh, in, in, in any of these cases. Learning is great, but companies uh, don't reward you for learning. They, they want to reward you for what you offer. And at the same time, in all of these cases, my goal was always to be as much as possible to be a team player to you know uh, help the team members succeed, to uh, bring in better engineering practices, to bring in uh, better uh, uh, tactics that we can do to improve the productivity of the team. So I think, broadly speaking, when I think of my accomplishment, I think enabling my team members to be more productive is something. Which I feel proud of in all the cases. How about uh, what was the biggest setback or challenge you faced, and and how did you handle that? Oh yeah, I think uh, I, I would say every time there's a mind mindset shift that's involved. So even jumping from Google to Malta, the, there was a mindset shift that was required. That suddenly, in, in case of Google, a lot of decisions. Okay, which libraries to use? How would you store data? How would you uh, access data? How would you deploy your code all of these things were you know very standard set in stone which were sorry which were completely unnegotiable uh, you can which were not negotiable you cannot negotiate them so oh, and and this simplifies your life a lot because now you're only trying to figure out how to do something uh, and there are no alternatives uh, then you jump to a small startup a 10 person startup and suddenly all this decision making is your responsibility you're trying to deliver something and there's a vague specification but beyond that how do you store data how do you access data 
how do you deploy how do you maintain redundancy uh, all those things are you know up in the air and then uh, and i would say the open source stack has improved a lot but back in uh, 2013 2015 the open source stack was pretty inferior compared to google now jumping into seno uh, there was uh, another setback or another challenge which was getting or understanding this idea that i don't have full control of the context or the surroundings in which you know the app is running in so suddenly the code i'm writing has to be designed to be way more robust and even if i you know make a bug uh, i cannot deliver a fix immediately to the end users because i will have to you know commit a fix and then eventually google with would uh, take it take its own sweet time to finally release the app in a day or two and then users will install it in a few days and in all those time frame the bug could be bothering the user so suddenly the bar for code quality goes up drastically in those cases um all right well, thank you for sharing. Let's switch gears and start talking about your work with startups. Uh, currently, you're on the advisory board for several startups. What were your main goals uh, when you first got started working with startups? I never had this plan to uh, uh, join startups as an advisor. Uh, I was not initially actively seeking that kind of a role to begin with, but surprisingly, it just happened that uh, I was uh, just uh, helping a friend of mine. Uh, Think through idea through you know some decisions on the technical side. Uh, he, he was a non-technical person, but uh, he had a he had a co-founder, uh, technical co-founder who was uh, less experienced, and I ended up being sort of a founding board for him. Uh, and and this was all informal. Then uh, uh, one day, the friend realizes that okay, you know, we uh, are. Uh, uh, taking so much of your help, I think uh, let's formalize the relationship. And he decided to uh, give me advisory equity, and that's how the relationship uh, or my first advisory engagement started. And uh, that led to more reach outs in the future. Uh, and uh, before I could realize, I ended up on multiple startup uh, advisory boards. Can you talk more about how the process here works uh, as far as being uh, brought in, I guess? Is it driven more by the founders or their investors? Just uh, uncover this for me. I think it should always be driven by founders. It can be initiated by investors. In fact, uh, in some of the cases that I'm, I'm in, I work with or I'm sort of in informally touch with multiple VCs in the very Two of my advisory opportunities happened because the VCs decided to make those introductions where they said uh, where they felt that this could be useful for the founders. But I think in all the cases, once even if someone else initiates it, the founders should take the initiative forward and then decide that is this the right engagement or not. And I tell the founders explicitly that you need to have a very clear view of why you want to bring in an advisor, not just me, but uh, even any other advisor, that what exactly are you looking from that person? And uh, if you don't have that clear vision, don't get an advisor just yet. Okay, so these days, do these kind of opportunities come your way? Are they inbound or do you source them? It has always been inbound for me. I have uh, never sourced these opportunities. I think that almost, I, I, I don't think that works unless, you know, you are sort of like trying to establish a consulting firm or something, then I think there might be a sort of a setup that can work. But 
that has never been my preference. And then follow-up question, is there typically like a dating period prior to you joining as an advisor or is it more of a shotgun wedding? Oh yeah, it's, uh, there's always a dating period. I would say uh, having after having an initial conversation, uh, I always request one meeting where I say, okay, you know, now let's do one meeting as if I have already signed up as an advisor. And uh, after that meeting, you should be able to evaluate if I'm adding sufficient value or not. And uh, I should be able to evaluate that is this the place where I can add some value or not. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a technical person. Okay, I, if, if, you know, if a startup is looking for uh, uh, an advisor who can help them with sales or uh, go to marketing uh, strategy, I don't think I'm the best person to uh, take an advice from. But sometimes I've gotten, surprisingly, those kind of reach-outs as well where uh, I have to politely decline those uh, reach-outs as soon as I sense that this, would be, this relationship wouldn't succeed. How well structured are these advisory engagements typically? I know you mentioned signing a contract uh, for the first one. Is that something you do uh, for all of these or, or can they be more informal? No, I, I always keep it with contract. And I think it just uh, keeps uh, things more professional. So you are paying me and that's why you expect something out of me. And having that expectation written in the form of a contract that are you expecting a meeting every quarter? Are you expecting a meeting every month? It's it's usually good to have that. And similarly, having compensation ensures that, you know, founder thinks too. It's it's very easy to uh, not value when you get a free advice. But when you're getting a paid advice, you pay more heat to it. Makes sense. So having done this for a few years, uh, what's surprised you the most about uh, being in an advisory role? Yeah, I think in many cases, the founders actually know what they want to do and they are mostly looking for sort of a sounding board. So I sort of act as a sounding board for the CTO and the product team and uh, I let them just bounce their ideas off of me. I, I would say I, I don't try to you know take an active role trying to make technology decisions for them. But whatever decisions they are taking, I help them think through whether this decision is good or bad. And surprisingly, just having that conversation usually prevents long-term mistakes. And and I'm surprised that more startup founders don't go for an advisor early on. How much time are you typically spending like with a startup? Tell me more about like the expectation there for both sides. I would say it's uh, one to two hours a month for a startup amortized. So uh, it, it's, it's important to know that there are startups they don't talk to me for three months and then suddenly they schedule uh, three architectural discussion meetings over the next one week. And then there are startups with uh, whom I have a, have a setup that uh, a calendar meeting is set up for every second week for next one year. What are some of the most challenging parts of working with startups as an advisor? I think one challenging part is definitely the communication and the context piece. So. When you have a full-time employee, that person is involved day in and day out in your company. So that person has a full context. While, you know, if you're talking to an advisor, and, and I'm not just saying technical advisor, any advisor, be it a sales advisor or be it a marketing advisor, you're talking to that person, let's say, once every 15 days. Now, in 15 days, some things might have happened which were critical, which were important to the 
discussion going forward, but that uh, advisor might be totally unaware of those things. So I would say to have a good relation, a founder needs to, you know, keep a good communication where uh, they are able to bring an advisor up to speed in terms of, okay, this is what happened in my company, in my startup in the past 15 days, in the past 30 days since we had the conversation. These are the important things that have changed so that the advice is tailored accordingly. So we all know, uh, listening to this podcast, that you know a startup is a fragile thing. Most don't succeed. In your eyes, what do you think has the most potential to go wrong in the first year of a startup when it's sort of in this early stage? First year or uh, the zeroth year? <laughs> the zeroth, yeah. Zero to one. Okay. So, so surprisingly, uh, even before uh, most startups get a chance to hit on the front page of Product Hunt or Tech Hunt, they die because there's a founder fight. Uh, surprisingly, even in Y Combinator, in every batch, if you ask uh, uh, someone from someone who's inside the batch, they will tell you that at least a few startups end up failing because the founders go to the YC partner and say, we don't like each other. We don't want to work with each other. And uh, then the partners say, okay, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. Just uh, let's just end the relationship. There's no point if, if you two can't stand each other. There's no point continuing working on the startup. So that's one thing that happens in sort of the zero year, usually, even usually before the funding phase. Sometimes it happens after the funding phase and uh, then more of a public fight that happens. And uh, in the first year, I would say the bigger issue that happens is uh, getting the product market fit right. I think nailing that is hard. I, I wouldn't be able to say I have a proper fix for it or solution for it. But finding a, a nice market for the product you're thinking or building the right product for the market you have in mind, getting that PMF right, I think uh, is the biggest challenge most startups face. Yeah. Well, okay. Two very thoughtful answers from someone who Definitely has uh, the experience. All right, next, uh, is there any specific advice that you've been giving to founders uh, that you'd maybe like to highlight? Yeah, I, I would say a, a generic advice I you know give to founders, which is that uh, you're making a lot of decisions uh, without having the full information, and that's, that's just the hard reality of the situation you have to. But in those cases, try to see if the decision has a long-term consequence or a short-term consequence. So uh, what market you are choosing, what market you're going after has a long-term consequence. On the tech side, what database you're using. It's, it's, it's hard to you know switch from one database technology to another after, after a year or so, what cloud platforms you're using, what language you're using to write your code in. These are all long-term decisions. And I recommend startup founders that they really deliberate through these decisions uh, and if possible find someone to you know validate their ideas before taking strong decisions in these cases the other set of decisions are more reversible so uh, in those kind of decisions it's you know it's, it's best just to move as fast as possible and figure out within a week or two whether you made the right decision or the wrong decision and then just course correct at that point. It's, it's usually much cheaper rather than trying to deliberate too much. Those do you think founders are, are happy with your work? I, I know you can't read minds, but um, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> yes, uh, I think it's, a, it's it's hard to answer. I think uh, 
I think it's usually easier for an employee to figure out uh, whether their team is happy with their work or not. It's a bit harder uh, for uh, an advisor to figure that out. But uh, I mean, no one has fired me yet, so I presume they're happy with me. <laughs> Let's talk about investing in startups. You know, you're also active as an angel investor. How long has that been going on? I would say on and off since about 2014, eight years. But uh, it, it, it's not like uh, I've been fully uh, focused on trying to figure out investing. I've been looking into the space more like an on and off person. What kind of startups uh, do you find particularly interesting? I would say startups that are very heavy in terms of, uh, usually in terms of software. So I think uh, there are areas that I don't fully understand. I think pharmaceutical is a great industry of uh, trying to figure out new drugs or aging technologies or cancer research. Um, I think it's a great area, but that's not something that I understand. So a startup founder can come and tell me anything and I have no way of questioning whether what they're saying is uh, possible or not or how big the market is going to be for this. So I stay away from uh, those kind of areas that I don't understand and I prefer to focus more towards software-heavy startups where the core core pieces software. How do you source investment opportunities? Uh, yeah, that ends up being, I think, uh, complicated and random. I would say everyone has their own ad hoc deal flow in multiple ways. There's always a lot of reach out that is happening over LinkedIn. Then uh, I have uh, a VC friends. So in some cases, they uh, allow me to. So, so they are investing in, this, in a seed round and they allow me to come in as a value-added investor along with them. Then uh, there are multiple angel groups I'm part of where the deals get discussed and uh, I get and uh, I help them the due diligence side, tech diligence side of things. And in the offering, the due diligence, I get a chance to uh, invest in those deals. So that that has been my source of strategy. Mm. Uh, and are there any interesting startups uh, that you've invested in so far that you might want to share? Oh yeah, I I, I do. I, yeah, I uh, okay. Yeah, if, if you want to give me a chance to advertise, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, I would say uh, Nervi is a great one. Uh, so uh, what what they are doing is that uh, they are trying to standardize the banking infrastructure as a white label service. So uh, uh, they're based out of East Coast. And uh, uh, I, ha- I had a call with, with the founder and you know I was impressed that the two co-founders actually were running one of the largest student-run credit unions while studying at Georgia Tech. And then uh, uh, I, I looked at the numbers. I was impressed. I looked, I looked at what they had built and decided to invest in... Uh, they, they have been... Uh, going strong, uh, they're based further around, so uh, I'm happy. Uh, how actively are you engaged with your portfolio companies typically? I would say as active as they want me to be or as passive as they want me to be. Uh, there have been cases where I've done uh, technical interviews for uh, engineering candidates for my portfolio companies, and then there are cases where uh, uh, the founders just don't want to engage. Uh, beyond like sending a quarterly update and i mean i respect uh this uh i think it's a founder's decision uh, as you know i i cut small checks uh so i think uh i don't have a right to decide or ha- i don't have a right to dictate uh a lot of these terms to the founders uh what would you say the hardest part is about being an angel investor and and then uh, after hardest part what's the most rewarding 
I think the hard part is trying to, you know, not just be right, uh, but uh, not be, you know, out of fashion with the market. Uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, let, let, let me explain that. For example, if there's a big VC, they invest in a startup, and then suddenly that particular field goes out of fashion, but they really believe in that startup, and uh, that startup needs another two, three years of runway to survive. That VC can come in and pump in maybe next round of money. They can support the startup through the bad phases. An angel investor doesn't really have that capability. Uh, when you cut a $25,000 check or a $50,000 check, in a, in, and, and, and if the startup is based out of uh, any of the high-cost-of-living areas like New York, San Francisco, area or Los Angeles, you really don't have an ability to help them further with uh, another check if, if, they, if, if, if you see a potential, but they need like another six or 12 months of runway to achieve that potential. So that's the hard part of being an angel investor. And then how about most rewarding? I think the rewarding part is getting a chance to see a company being built from scratch, from like, you know, a, a two-founder kind of a setup, putting money in there to them reaching a stage where uh, they are reaching money from an institutional investor and they have grown up enough at that point that uh, uh, those investors are joining their pools. I think that uh, I feel is pretty rewarding for me. Let's talk about the blo- your blog next. Uh, in addition to working with and investing in startups, you run your own blog. Talk about why that's important to you. What's it about? Oh yeah, I've been running my blog since about 2010. Um, about you know, about the time I was about to graduate, I decided that uh, I will maintain a public blog. Uh, and I actually used to maintain uh, a blog inside my college too, so it wasn't very different uh, of a setting for me. It's just the domain changed and. Uh, for me, I think just writing down my thoughts, just sharing what I wanted to say under my persona uh, is sort of something which I enjoy. So that, that's how I maintain that public presence. And surprisingly, that public presence helps uh, in, in many cases when I'm having conversations with a startup founder or uh, with the uh, in, in any other professional context, in many cases, those individuals have already seen my blog. Those already, those individuals have already read some of my say technical blog posts. And it, uh, as an ancillary effect, it casts off casts off a good impression on them. There's several parts to your blog. Which part is your favorite? It's uh, it's it's interesting. I would say my if if you would have asked me that what my favorite would have been before looking at analytics, I would have said travel. But uh, uh, when I look at analytics, my favorite part is the book summaries. It's, it's funny that uh, travel is such a contested space. There are so many bloggers who write about their travel journeys that uh, my blog almost never shows up in uh, on, on like Google search results or something in terms of if you're searching for anything travel related. Even if I've written a really good, at least in my opinion, a really good blog post about that particular place. But... Uh, Surprisingly, not many people blog about book summaries. So uh, my blog, some of my blog posts are uh, uh, used as reading materials in uh, many colleges uh, in the United States. Uh, so, so those book summaries are being read, and I feel really happy about that. Let's move to the close and kind of ask some big picture questions. Uh, what's one thing about your journey and experience that you're most proud of looking back You know, from this point? Yeah, I think... 
broadly speaking i'm happy being part of you know multiple of these startups multiple of i would say let's start up in google case is not a startup it's a more multiple of these products where i get a chance to build things from scratch where i was able to deliver a value to the society that i uh, that, that makes me feel satisfied and was a rewarding experience and looking back is there anything you might have done differently oh wow <laughs> yeah i think uh that's uh, hindsight is always uh, 2020 right you know uh, right from to 2010 i should have uh, put 100% of my uh, after tax income into bitcoin right <laughs> uh, let me ask it a different way would you give any advice to your 20 year old self i would say just uh having an even stronger focus would have helped i think there were occasions i feel I got distracted and missed out on certain opportunities, especially you know in terms of angel investments, where uh, I think uh, in the hindsight I regret because uh, something else was going in my life and they distracted me. Do you have any future plans? Broadly speaking, I see myself as a builder. I you know I, I write code even these days, working on some of my side projects, and I think uh, even in the near future, I see myself building things. Well, we are going to end it there. Uh, if you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Um, please check out uh, Ashish's blog. I have it here at the top. We'll include it in the in the notes, but it's uh, https colon dash dash uh, Ashish. Uh, that is a s h i s h b dot net. So Ashish b dot net. Um, you can find his work there. Ashish, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate your time, your insights, and um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Alex.